Good morning. <clears throat> it's good to see everybody today. Um, happy uh, opening Sunday for NFL fans in here. It's exciting. Go Bengals. Um, man, it's always good to see you guys. I love uh, getting to come together and just worship with all of you uh, every Sunday morning. Do we have any uh, animal lovers in here? Anyone raise your hand? Animal? Okay, yeah, I got some of them. All right, uh, I, I love animals. I grew up with a lot of pets, um, but I don't actually have any at the moment, and I probably won't for a while, if ever. Uh, even though I enjoyed them growing up as an adult, it's kind of a responsibility, an extra responsibility I don't want. Uh, there's only one pet that I've had in my adult life, and uh, it is actually a bird. It was a bird named Zorro. That's, oh, all right, well... <laughs> that didn't work out so well, but uh, there is a picture there. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so it was a little bird named Zorro. He was uh, what we call a cedar waxwing, and they had they have this kind of like black stripe over their eyes, which made him look kind of like Zorro. So that's why we named him that. And uh, you know, we, we didn't obtain him by just kind of like going to a pet store or anything like that. He he kind of just fell into our laps. Um, because we uh, pulled into our driveway one day, and it was really strange. We have this retaining wall right by our driveway, it's, and it's like, I don't know, shoulder level when you get out of the car. And there was a bird that was sitting on it, which was what you were supposed to be able to see in one of these pictures. Um, but you, you look at it, and we got out of the car, and the bird just like didn't go anywhere, you know, and I was several inches from it. It's very strange for a bird to let you, a wild bird to let you get that close to it. And so, uh, we're like, okay, what's up with this bird? Why is it just chilling here? And uh, then we look down the street, and we see that there's a cat that's kind of like, you know, waiting in the wings. We got a lot of stray cats in the neighborhood, and it's just, it's there, like looking at this, its next meal, and we're like, oh, we got to do something to help this bird. Like, it, it clearly can't fly away. It would have flown away by now if it if it was able to. And so, <clears throat> I forget which one of us, either me or Cass, went upstairs to go like try and find a cardboard box or something, and we were just gonna try and you know, take him in for a little bit. And as we went to do this, this little bird was like trying to run away from us as, as much as it could. It was hop, hop, hopping away. But, you know, birds aren't really designed to run from predators very well by hopping. Um, so we were able to, to catch him as much as he didn't want us to. And, uh, you know, we kind of just kept him in a box. And for a while, he didn't really want anything to do with us. He, he thought we were scared and probably viewed us as just another predator, like that cat that was waiting uh, to try and get him. Uh, but after a little bit, as we uh, showed him that, you know, we were safe, we started to feed him some berries, he started to like us. Uh, he started to realize that we weren't actually trying to hurt him, but what we were actually trying to do was help him. And eventually, we became friends. He even let us hold, oh, there you go, look at that. There's, there's Cass holding him and feeding him a berry right out of her hand. Yeah, a little wild bird. Um, you know, I tell you that story because when I, we went to find Zorro, the actions that we took initially, like he thought were for his, for his detriment. He thought we were trying to hurt him. He thought we were dangerous. Uh, what we were doing was to harm him. But in reality, what we were doing was actually trying to help him. You see, there was a misunderstanding. And uh, thankfully, we were just misunderstood by a bird, which is not really that big of a deal. Uh, but when you're misunderstood by people, especially ones that you care about, that can be something that's really frustrating and painful. And I want to just ask you, like, have you ever felt like you've been misunderstood by people? Like, especially people that you care about. 
If you do feel that way, then I just want to tell you that like you're in good company. Um, the Apostle Paul, the guy who wrote like half the New Testament, he was no stranger to this. He was a really godly man, loved people a ton, would always make sacrifices, would, was really willing to do anything to get the gospel to people. Um, and yet, despite all of this, when we get to his letter in 2 Corinthians, which is what we've been studying this semester, we see that he was misunderstood by a lot of these people that he had poured his life into. And actually, in this letter, he's trying to repair the relationship that he has with them and smooth out some of the damages there and the misunderstandings that had arisen concerning him. And so as he does this, we're actually going to get a great picture of what the life of a faithful Christian servant looks like, because he's going to be drawing attention to that as he's trying to help them see who he actually is, rather than buy into some of the misunderstandings that they had come to. And so with that, as we're studying this letter throughout the semester, we're calling this series 2 Corinthians, the picture of a faithful Christian servant. And so we just read the first 10 verses last week when we started off, and we saw that a faithful Christian servant is someone who's comforted by God and looks to comfort others also. Well, this week, we're going to learn something else about a faithful Christian servant, and that's that a faithful Christian servant is sincere and trustworthy. And so let's pray. I'm going to dive into our text and uh, just see what God has for us this morning. God, we love you, and uh, I just thank you for who you are. I thank you that um, you're a good God that, that's always working to do good. Um, God, I know sometimes we don't see that or understand that, but I pray, Lord, that you would help us to trust you in the midst of everything. God, I pray that you would uh, help us to open up your word this morning and really just understand it. God, I pray that you would give us um, the ability to shut out distractions that might be uh, crowding into our mind right now that we'd be able to lay down anxieties or fears that we might have come in with, and that uh, we would just be able to apply ourselves to learning your word and then uh, later to putting it into practice. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd be with us here this morning and work in our hearts and our minds, and that you'd be glorified. We love you. We pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be in uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, and I'm going to start reading at verse 12. We'll go verses 12 through 22. Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you, with integrity and godly sincerity. We have done so, relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. For we do not write you anything that you cannot read or understand. And I hope that, as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of our Lord Jesus. Because I was confident of this, I wanted to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I fickle when I intended to do this? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say both yes, yes, and no, no? But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. 
Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. All right, we're going to stop there for now. Uh, So when we read our Bible, and I hope this is something that you do regularly or or will come to do regularly, I hope that you're reading it uh, with the intent to act upon what you've read. Sometimes uh, that's very easy and straightforward and obvious. You know, you get like commands that are straight up telling you do this. And it's like, okay, cool. I'm going to go and do that. Um, But other times it's not always as straightforward and obvious. And I think that this is one of those texts where uh, we may struggle sometimes with seeing the value that it would have in our lives. But if we learn to be really good students of the Bible, I think that you're, you're going to get to a spot where you can come to realize that God's Word, every single part of it is valuable, and there's always something that you can learn about how to follow Him better when you start to read it. But in order to do this, we have to learn how to actually be good students of the text, okay? And th- that starts with us understanding what is it that this text meant to its original hearers, before we go and try to apply it in our own lives, right? Like we want to apply it in our own lives, but if we don't understand what was going on and what it meant to its original hearers, then uh, we can run into several problems, all right? If we're impatient in trying to figure out the historical situation, there's two things that are probably going to happen. First off, you're going to fail to see the relevance of large portions of the Bible. If you don't do a good job of putting yourself uh, in the shoes of the original hearers and why this was something that was valuable to them, you're going to miss why it's valuable for you today. And so you're going to look at a lot of your Bible and you're going to see it as something that's old, dusty, and irrelevant. All right, but there's actually really something that's good for us to learn from all parts of Scripture. Now, the other thing that might happen is that you might end up missing the point of what's actually being said. If you don't try to figure out what it meant to its original hearers, there's a good chance you're going to misunderstand what's going on and then misapply the text as you try to live it out in your life today. Trying to apply a biblical text to your life before you've taken time to understand it is like trying to drive to a destination before you know how to get there, right? It's like kind of just getting in your car and going a certain direction. You may get lucky and end up in the right spot, but you're also probably not going to get there as efficiently, and there's also a really good chance that you won't end up actually where you're trying to go. So the first thing I want to do with this text is I want to make sure that we understand the historical situation of what's going on between Paul and the Corinthians that he was writing to. And then we're going to be better under, uh, equipped to understand how we can apply a text like this in our lives today. All right. Sound good? Helpful? All right. I, I think we can do this. So what I, I, the historical situation was happening here. Uh, it, it appears that there was an accusation that was coming up against Paul that he was not sincere and that you couldn't trust his word, all right? This is why uh, he swears that he's acted with integrity. Look at 2 Corinthians 1.12. He says, now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you with integrity and godly sincerity. Remember, there's some relational difficulty that's going on between Paul and these people that he's writing to. And one of the things that seems like it's under attack is his integrity. Is he sincere in what he actually says? Now, he wouldn't need to speak about this unless his integrity was in in question. And it appears that the reason his sincerity and integrity are in question is because of some changed travel plans that he had. All right? 2 Corinthians 1.16 says, 
I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then have you send me on my way to Judea. So the, the idea, I wanted to come and visit you guys twice. Once, go off to Macedonia, come back, see you guys again, be off to Judea. Um, however, this is not how things actually played out. Uh, there, and, and because he didn't return to Corinth the second time, he made that first visit, he didn't make the second one, there were some people that must have started to say that he was untrustworthy. You couldn't count on what it is that he said. All right, he makes it clear, and, and he even asked this question for them in verse 17. Was I fickle when I intended to do this, or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say both yes, yes, and no, no? See, if Paul was being fickle, or even worse, if he was being deceptive, telling them that he, he meant to do something but actually never wanted to do it in the first place, then that would be a problem for his credibility. So we have a misunderstanding here. There are some people in Corinth they're all seeing the same action, right? Like, the action is that Paul intended to come to them twice. He only came to them once in this. And uh, he, he didn't make this second return. And there's a misunderstanding about why that happened. There's some people in Corinth that are saying, well, he must not have come the second time because he's fickle. He's not trustworthy. He doesn't hold up to his word. And then there's others. That Paul is saying, no, that's not why it was. There is some other reason for this. He swears that his conscience is testifying that it, he had uh, integrity and godly sincerity in the way that he had acted with them. He didn't have bad motives in doing this. And, and if we went on to verse 23, he says, I call God as my witness and I stake my life on it that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. He made the decision not to return to them the second time because he believed that this is what was best for them. But we'll get more into that next week because that's one of the big texts that we'll be getting into. But for now, we can see that Paul was misunderstood. He did something to try and help the Corinthians, but the very action that he had to try and help them was instead interpreted as something that was hurtful or sinful. And guys, this is the worst. Like when you have uh, an action that's interpreted in the exact opposite way of what you intended it to be. Has anyone ever had that happen to them before? <laughs> yeah, like you, you've done something with good intentions, but for whatever reason, the person on the other side of the situation interprets it exactly the opposite way of what you wanted. And that's some of what Paul is trying to, to work through here. And you know, it's not just you or Paul that runs into this. I notice that there's a lot of people, I think, that, that do this with God. That quite often, God does something that we don't understand. It's for our good, but in reality, we interpret it in the exact opposite way. Okay, there's two major ways I see people do this a lot. The first is the accusation that God is robbing us of the good life by giving us all these different commands that we need to follow. Right? People think that God's commands are bad for us, but in reality, they're actually for our good. I'll give you some examples. There is tons of mistrust about the idea that God is actually trying to lead us into the best life possible. Say, man, God's robbing me of fun by telling me that I shouldn't get drunk. You know, God's, God's robbing me of, of fun and of connection by telling me that I shouldn't have sex outside of marriage. You know, God, God is prohibiting me from being happy by telling me that I shouldn't engage in homosexual activity. God is ostracizing me uh, and just m making me uh, be stuffy or something like that by, by not letting me have uh, filthy speech or do coarse joking. You know, God is, is, is taking away my comfort by, by telling me that I'm supposed to be generous and give to the poor. You know, God, God is uh, robbing me of the comfort that I want in life by telling me that I should actually share my faith with other people. 
God's robbing me of the prestige that I want by telling me that I should be humble and serve others. You know, God's robbing me of the good life by telling me that I should put him above everything else. And guys, I want to tell you, like, God is not after your misery. All right? He's not. I promise you that he is not trying to diminish the quality of your life with any command that he gives you. If God gives you a command, it is for your good. I am totally and fully convinced of this. God makes this clear that what he wants for us is abundant life. Look at what Jesus said in John 10.10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus desires to give you abundant life. You know who's actually trying to rob life from you? The thief. Like we have a spiritual enemy that that lies and that that wants to deceive us and wants to lead us away from God. And he's the one that wants to, to steal and kill and destroy. Whatever he's trying to lead you into, that's what's actually not going to lead to the good life. Jesus says, I want to give you abundant life. You know, the the commands that he gives us are are not meant to rob joy. Look at how uh, this is said in 1 John 5, 2-3. By this we know that we love the children of God. Uh, Sorry, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Is that the perspective that you have about God's commands? That his commands are not burdensome. See, the point of of what he's doing is not to make your life miserable. We may not always immediately understand why God has given us a command. Like, I, I totally understand wrestling with some of the things that God has told us to do. I've done this plenty in my life. When I was in high school, um, I was in a, a serious dating relationship. I dated the same girl for three years throughout high school. And I can tell you that like God's command to not have sex outside of marriage did not seem like a good command to me. Like That is not what I wanted. It seemed like it was unnecessary. It seemed like it was robbing me from, from fun. It seemed like it was stopping me from being able to connect in a way that other people were connecting. Um, and and just, it, it wasn't something that I liked. It wasn't something that I wanted to obey. But I, I praise God that I was, I, was tr- I was convinced that he was good, even if I didn't understand why he gives all the commands that he did. And so by his grace, I was able to actually follow him and, and put into practice what he said. And now that I have more perspective, I can see why God gave that command. I can see that like when, when me and that girl did eventually break up, like it happened with a lot less heartbreak and a lot less baggage than what would have happened if, if we had pursued a, you know, a different route. And, you know, praise God that he's a God that gives grace for sinners and that he restores the broken. If your story is not the same as mine and, and you're coming in with baggage, like, I totally believe that God can heal and restore. But, man, I believe that first and foremost, God wants to protect us from the damage of sin in the first place. And so when he gives us commands about, you know, how we should use our, our bodies or how we should use our money or anything like that, like, it's for our good. If God's given us a command, it's because he loves us. And you know, as children that don't have the same perspective, like, it won't always make sense. Someday, maybe it will. You know, I see this with my, my one-year-old daughter all the time. There's, there's so many things that she wants to do that I'm happy to let her do. I want to say yes to her as much as I can. But there's other times that I just, I have to tell her no. And she doesn't like that. But it's never because I'm trying to rob her joy. It's always because I know I have actually a better understanding of what's good for her than she does. And there's sometimes that I have to not let her do what she wants 
even if uh, it makes her upset. And I honestly think that this is how God's commands are for us a lot of the time. We're better off trusting God and doing what he says rather than thinking that we know better. So I want to tell you, when God says that he loves us and that he wants us to have abundant life, we can be assured that he is sincere and trustworthy in saying that. You know, another way that I believe that God is, is consistently misunderstood is the belief that he's weak or he's apathetic. And the reason is because of all the pain and suffering and evil that's allowed to go on in the world. The thought is, man, you know, I, the Bible tells me that God is good, he's all-powerful, that he's compassionate, that he's loving. But when I look around at the world around me, like, there's a lot of pain and suffering, isn't there? There's a lot of brokenness. And I talk to people sometimes who say, man, I have a really hard time believing in God because how, if he really is good and he has the power to be able to stop all these kind of things and he cares, then why is all this stuff still happening? You know, so, so they come to the conclusion that he's either weak, maybe he cares, but he just can't do anything about it, or that, uh, you know, maybe he, he can do something about it, but he's just apathetic, he doesn't care, or maybe he's even cruel and he likes seeing it continue to go on. Well, the Bible gives us a different answer to this problem. You know, the Bible shows us that all of this evil, pain, and suffering continues in the world, not because God is weak or because he's cruel, but because he's actually patient and merciful. You know, if anyone knows suffering, Jesus knew suffering. His early followers especially knew suffering. Suffering wasn't just a, a theoretical concept that they had to ask, why is God allowing this continue to go on? It was an experience that they had, questioning why is God allowing this to continue to go on. And you know, P uh, Peter was writing to some Christians that were going through hard times and suffering. And we see this in 2 Peter chapter 3 when he's talking about how uh, he's, he's trying to help them realize that there is a day that God is going to set everything right. He said there's lots of people that are scoffing, that are saying, no, God's never going to set anything right. He's never going to deliver on these promises. But he says this in 2 Peter 3, 7. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Basically say, you know what? A day is coming, I promise you this, that God is going to judge the earth. And that all the people that are they're doing terrible things to others, they're, uh, they're uh, messing this world up, all this kind of stuff, there's going to be destruction that's coming for the ungodly. God's not lacking in power. He's able to judge the earth, and he's going to. He's going to punish all evil, and he's going to destroy the ungodly. But, that leads us to something that's really important that he's going to say in verses 8 and 9. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You see what Peter's telling them here? This is his answer to the question of why is God allowing all this pain and suffering to go on? And we, we know one day he's going to address it, but why hasn't he addressed it already? Why hasn't he set things right? Because he's actually holding off his judgment to give people time to repent. You see, I, I think a lot of us don't realize that apart from Christ, like, we're lumped in with the ungodly. You know, all of us are guilty of sin. All of us are guilty to committing uh, uh, sin and contributing to the brokenness of this world. And one day, like when God sets things right, he's going to set them really right. Like he's not going to just do the job halfway. 
One day, all sin, all pain, all death, all that stuff, it's all going to be done away with. And it's going to be awesome. There's going to be a new heavens, new earth. It's going to be an amazing place. But all evil is going to be done away with. That judgment has to come first. And the reality is that when that judgment comes, there's a lot of people that aren't going to be ready for it. And that includes you if you're outside of Christ. Because there's only one way for us to actually be able to come to repentance and be forgiven of sin. And so, you know, when when Peter writes this, he's helping us realize the reason God is holding off this judgment is so that more and more would come to repentance. Why? Because that's what he really desires. That everyone would come there. He doesn't want anyone to perish. It's his love and his mercy that are actually making him hold off that final judgment to the earth. What some may misunderstand to be weakness or apathy is actually God's love and mercy. So when God says that he's all-powerful and that he's loving and compassionate, we can be assured that he is sincere and trustworthy in saying that. Our God is faithful, he's true. It's at the very core of who he is. This is affirmed time and time throughout the scripture. Look at Numbers 23, 19. It says, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? God does what he says. Jesus actually calls himself the way, the truth, and the life. Hebrews 6.18 tells us that it's impossible for God to lie. We know that God's faithful and true. And he does what's necessary to keep his promises. You see this in verse 20 of the main passage we had in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It says, no matter how many the promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. This can seem like a kind of strange sentence to us. But what Paul is saying is that in Christ, God is able to keep all of his promises. You see, God's made a a ton of promises. He promised to Abraham that he would bless all the nations through him. In Christ, that promise finds its fulfillment. Christ, the descendant of Abraham, is the one that would be the savior of the world. You know, God promised David that his descendants would be on the throne forever. And in Christ, that promise is fulfilled as he's our eternal king. God promises that he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, and in Christ that is fulfilled because that sin was punished on the cross, and it allows him to forgive us. God promised way back in Genesis that when the very first sin happened and the, the serpent deceived Adam and Eve, he promised that there's a seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent, and in Christ that promise is fulfilled. And in Christ the promise of a restored creation is able to come, that we're able to take part in. You know, God's made many promises, and in Jesus, they're able to be fulfilled. And so because of this, the church says amen, right? The term amen is actually a transliteration of a Hebrew word, okay? It's just, I mean, it's the same sounds, the Hebrew word, and it literally means to confirm or to establish. So when we say amen, that means that we're stating our agreement with something. So you, you pray as a group, everybody says amen, they're basically saying, we, yes, let it be established. We all agree with what's being said here. And so when God makes a promise to us, the church says, amen, yes, we believe it, so so be it. And when the church sees Jesus, he's proof that God keeps his promises. And so if God is sincere and trustworthy, then that leads us to what we should do, which is be sincere and trustworthy as well. As a church, we glorify God in expressing our faith in his promises, but we also glorify God by being imitators of him. Ephesians 5.1 says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. 
I love this, right? Children love to imitate their fathers. I, I see this constantly. Um, my daughter, Anya, she tries to imitate everything, like literally everything that I do. The words that I use, she wants to repeat all of them. If I stretch, she literally will stretch at the same time and make the same sound that I make when I stretch. If I'm sneezing or coughing, she tries to sneeze and cough as well. I was in the bathroom blowing my nose the other day, and you know we teach her the, the animal sounds. And for elephants, she does this like thing, like, and uh, she, she thought I was in there making the elephant noise. So she's, so she's out in the living room trying to make the elephant noise because she hears dad in there doing that. You know, <clears throat> even my laugh, if you've been around me, you know I have a kind of ridiculous laugh. It kind of sounds more like a scream sometimes. And, and if I do that, like, no joke, Anya after me will, will try to do the same thing. She'll, she'll try to make that same scream. She's always trying to be an imitator of me. And it's such a great picture, right? Because as beloved children, be imitators of your father. We're beloved children of, our, of God our Father, and we are called to be imitators of him. If our father is sincere and trustworthy in all that he says, then we are called to be people that are also sincere and trustworthy in what we said. Paul took this call to imitate the Lord really, really seriously. And that's why it's so important for him to show the Corinthians that he really was sincere. This is basically his argument in verse 18, where he says, But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. God is faithful, we're faithful too. We act the same way that he does. He wanted to remind them of the character of God that he was so devoted to. And wanted to show them that it wouldn't make any sense for him to preach about and follow a God who's so faithful and then not reflect that in his own life as well. And so I want to ask you, like, how seriously do you take the call to be an imitator of God? In all aspects of life, but especially in this aspect of letting your word actually mean something. I think that this is something that we probably don't pay as much attention to as we should. There's a lot of areas where we probably think a lot about trying to live holy lives and be imitators of God. But when it comes to actually keeping our word, I think that we're kind of lax on that. And it's something that honestly, we should probably, not probably, that we should definitely as a church try to grow in. That, it, you know, if I say I'm going to do something, I actually follow through on that. Like your boss should see you as a reliable employee, that when they give you a task, like you actually get it done. Your friends should see you as a person that they can count on. You know, you're not someone that's just going to bail on them or kind of change plans all the time when something else comes up or becomes more convenient. Your classmates should see you as a great group project contributor. <laughs> that you have a section of that project to get done and you're going to get it done. You follow through on what you say. You know, now there are of course times where plans have to change, right? Like we actually saw that happen here with Paul. He, he had to change his plans about visiting Corinth. Um, there, sometimes there's things that happen that just we can't control, okay? And, and there's other times where circumstances change to where you have a different understanding of the plan and, and you realize that plans have to change in order for the benefit of everybody. Um, but by and large, we need to be people that really hold to our word. And if we are going to change what we do, it shouldn't just be because a better option comes up or something's more convenient or we just don't feel like it. It should be because we've prayed about it, we've sought the Lord, and we've come to realize that changing the course of action is actually what's best for everybody that's involved. All right? Let us not be people that just take the easy way out whenever it's difficult to come through on a commitment. You know, 
I want to come to a close here, but I want to draw us back to this idea of the, the faithfulness and trustworthiness of God. He's a God that always follows through on his commitments. He keeps his word. He keeps his promises. And, you know, it's easy for me to sit here and say, like, well, yeah, of course, God keeps his promises. The Bible says that he does, right? But, like, what has he done to prove that he really keeps his promises? Well, Paul even talks about that here a little bit in 2 Corinthians 1. He says, <clears throat> he talks about this deposit that proves God's sincerity. Look what he says. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. All right? There's something that's coming. There's a new life that's coming, right? This is actually one of the great promises to Christians. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. There's this promise that God has made to us that, that if we believe in him, we'll be people that have eternal life. And what Paul is telling us here is that God has given us something that, as a deposit to help us really trust that promise, right? And that's, that's really what a deposit is. It's, it's something that shows that you can count on the person to come through for the full payment later, uh, you know, when you go to try and buy a house, when you put an offer in, uh, they ask you to put something called earnest money down, right? So it's not just that you're putting in an offer. They want you to actually put some money in and saying like, hey, I'm so serious about this offer. I'm like giving you this money to prove that I'm serious about it. And the, the reality is that God's, Paul's saying God's done this similar thing with us. He says, I promise you eternal life and I'm so serious about it. I'm actually going to give you a deposit. It's not this full payment yet. You don't, you don't, have it in the, the full and final form that it's coming in, but there's a deposit I'm going to give you that's kind of a, a portion of what's coming. And what that is, is what? His Holy Spirit. He puts His Spirit in our hearts as a deposit. You know, the Holy Spirit within us starts to form us more into the people that God is ultimately going to make us into. The Spirit works in us and starts to weed out some of that sin and, and brokenness and all that that's in us right now. And yeah, we're not yet fully there. One day we're, we're fully going to be restored. But right now the Spirit is already in us and working in us to, to, to give us just even a little bit more of, that, of a taste of that life that's yet to come. You know, God promises a restoration, a full restoration that's coming. And the Spirit is the, the deposit that guarantees this. Look at what it said in Romans 8, 22 to 23. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. He's saying here, man, creation is, is subjected to futility right now. We live in a broken world. It's eagerly waiting for this restoration that we know is coming, this new heavens and this new earth. And he says that we have the Spirit, the first fruits. What are the first fruits? They're the, if you have a crop, it's the very beginning of that crop. Okay, the, the crop hasn't come in in fullness, but it's the very first ones that pop up that you get to see. They give a taste of everything else that's yet to come. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. It's that, that little first glimpse of what's yet to come. And with that, we groan inwardly, waiting for that full redemption that's on its way. 
You know, a day is coming when creation is going to be fully restored. You can count on that. It is promised in Scripture, and the Holy Spirit is the deposit that lets us even get a taste and assurance of knowing what's on its way. But before that comes, before that, that full restoration comes, before we, we get to even have our transformed bodies, that, you know, that this perishable body is, is clothed instead with what's imperishable, this beautiful reality of what we know is coming, I already talked about this a little bit earlier, but there's judgment that has to come first. Before the redemption of our bodies and restoration comes, judgment will come first. And Paul talked about this in Acts 17. He said this in Acts 17.30. He says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You see, we actually have a similar pattern here. There's a promise that judgment is coming and that he's going to be judged, that the world is going to be judged in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. That's Jesus. And he says, what's the proof that he's given that this is going to happen? Just as the Spirit is the proof for us that we're on our way towards eternal life and restoration, the proof that Jesus is going to be the one that God judges the world through is shown by his raising from the dead. The resurrection is proof that God is serious about this. God's going to judge the world in righteousness by Jesus. What's that mean that he's going to judge the world in righteousness? Well, this means that God is going to judge the world in perfect righteousness. He's going to do away with all sin. There's going to be a perfect standard by which we're held. And, you know, if you're just a pretty good person, that's not going to hold up for you on Judgment Day. The only way that you're, you're going to be able to escape on Judgment Day is to be perfectly righteous. And the only way that you can have that is to be given the righteousness that Jesus gives us. And guys, you can be sure about this. The resurrection is proof that God is serious about this promise. And you know, there's one last promise. It's that Jesus promises to save all of those who come to him. Yes, there's a promise that there's going to be restoration. Yes, there's a promise that there's going to be judgment first. And there's a promise that all that would come to Jesus can escape judgment, can be forgiven of sin, and take part in that new heavens and new earth. This is what Jesus promised here in John 6, 37 to 40. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Man, if you come to Jesus, he's not going to cast you out. He's going to raise you up on the last day. Here he is. God is faithful and true. He holds to his promises. And so guys, I, I just want to be, be sincere and trustworthy and honest with you here. I want to lay out the scripture in front of you as someone who wants to be an imitator of God, that he's serious about the things that he said that he's serious about the fact that he wants to give new life and that that's available to you, that he's serious about the fact that judgment is coming and that he's serious about the fact that you can be forgiven and saved in Jesus Christ. And so my encouragement to you is, man, like 
If you're outside of Christ, come to him. Jesus invites you to come to him, to come and experience salvation. If you are a Christian, then my encouragement to you is, man, be an imitator of God. Be someone that's sincere and trustworthy in what you say, just like our God is. And may we be people that, that live lives that reflect the sincerity and trustworthiness of our God. Um, if you need prayer, if, if you, you even want to know, like, hey, what does it mean to actually come to Jesus? Like, there's people that will be around the room with prayer lanyards on. They would love to talk with you about that and pray with you about coming into that relationship with Christ. Or if you just want prayer to, like, say, hey, I realize, like, I've kind of been fickle with my word. I haven't really been holding to some of the things I want to say. I, I need to repent of that, and I need help with this. Like, then I honestly encourage you, go ask someone to help you. Have them pray for you. Or if you just need prayer for anything else in life, like there's people here that want to pray for you. So uh, I'm going to uh, pray for us all here corporately. The band's going to come up, and then we're going to enter into another time of worship. <clears throat> God, I thank you that you are uh, sincere and trustworthy. God, I thank you that uh, you do what you say. And God, I pray that uh, you would help us to be people that are imitators of you and um, that do what we say, Lord. That people, when they see us, they would know that they can actually count on our word. God, I'm sorry for the times that uh, I haven't reflected you well in that. I pray for our church, God, just that we would be a church full of people that um, have a word that means something. And God, I thank you for the, the honest promise that you've given us, that you uh, have fixed a day, that, that judgment's coming, that you're going to set all things right, that you're going to restore creation, and that we can be a part of that. We can be a part of that in Jesus. And Jesus, that, that for all who come to you, you're going to raise them up on the last day. And so, Lord, help us to be people that um, respond to the sincere and, and trustworthy promises that you've given us. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen.